you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 15. We'll be looking at Exodus 15 and 16. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be one in, uh, underneath the seat in front of you. you grab one of those and look along. Um, Exodus is the second book of the Bible. Exodus 15, beginning in verse 22, is where we'll start, and we'll read through the end of chapter 16. It's a lengthy reading. Um, If you're familiar with it, then you know this is a really engaging uh, portion of Scripture. Uh, If you're not familiar with it, then then tag along for this and, and be attentive to what is happening between Israel and God in these moments. Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full? For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. 
And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna forty years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is the tenth part of an ephah. Let's pray. Father, we ask, as we've read your word, and now we set our minds to understand it, that you would grant us that understanding. You would teach and instruct us from your word, and we, as your people, would receive what you have for us here. Lord, help remove any stubbornness, any hardness of heart that exists in us, any resistance to your truth. Lord, make us humble and submissive to your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that 
Israel and grumbling, uh, unfortunately, go hand in hand. Uh, It's kind of a quintessential text of the failure of Israel to trust the Lord God. We understand, of course, that the grumbling that Israel displayed was a really, really, really poor choice on their parts. It's embarrassing the way that they respond to God in this moment. The grumbling just seems totally out of control, totally uncalled for, totally inappropriate. And yet, when we read a passage like this, it pulls us in. It has to. Because the kind of heart that the Israelites had in their own sinful flesh is the kind of heart that we possess in our own sinful flesh. And who are we to stand in judgment over those who grumble and complain? Have you ever complained? Have you ever grumbled? Have you ever been discontent in your heart? Unfortunately, our lives can be as thick with grumbling as the Israelites were. We know no shortage of things to complain about. We could go on and on with a list of things that we can grumble about. We can grumble about politics, can complain about the weather, can complain about food, complain about what to drink, we can complain about our relationships with others, we can complain about our work, we can complain about our boss, we can complain about our friends, we can complain about our family, we can complain about what we sit in, we can complain about what we drive, we can complain about our bank accounts. Some of us can complain about our hairstyles. We can complain about anything under the sun. So I would suggest to you, as we work our way through this text, that this wouldn't just be a time to stand in judgment over a people that is long gone and have done their part in grumbling, but you would let this turn the mirror on your own heart. I'd encourage you that right now, while I'm speaking and going through this passage, that you would evaluate your own heart for any grumbling, discontentment, complaining that exists in there. And repent before the Lord, confess it to him, admit that it's wrong that you undermine his sovereignty, his goodness, his provision, his kindness, his mercy to you when you complain. Confess that to the Lord and ask him for his strength to turn from such grumbling and complaining. This text isn't only about grumbling, however. It is a text that is full of the kind and gracious provision of God. He fed and watered two million people in the wilderness. It is his kind provision that comes out in this text as well as the complaining. We see his amazing kindness here. And it makes us pause and reflect on the great provision that God has given to us. You likely have food in your cupboard and in your refrigerator, roof over your house, and clothes on your back. You're not necessarily worried about your next meal. God has abundantly supplied to each one of us in this room, day after day after day, we are abundantly privileged in how he cares for us, not only in physical ways, but much more in spiritual ways, how he guides us, he directs us, he's with us, he cares for us, he loves us, he's given us the Lord Jesus Christ, he's given us his spirit, 
All of this, every last drop of this is grace. It's his kind provision. And so I would suggest to you that even now while I'm speaking, that you would reflect on the gracious provision of God in your life. How much he has given you. How much he's done for you. And check your heart to see if you've returned to him the appropriate thanksgiving and praise that is due to him for how he kindly cares for you day after day. Silently, even now, worship God and praise him for the blessings he's poured out on you. We grumble. God provides. But we must not think that God is indifferent to the grumbling. He tests us. And so this text is also about the testing that God gives to his people. God knows what's in our hearts, and that's not really a question of this passage. It's not as though he's limited his sovereignty so he can't see past into our soul. He knows what's there. But he tests us to let us show in real time what is possessed of us inside of our hearts. Do we possess a heart that's ready to praise and worship and trust Him and obey Him? Or do we have a heart that's ready to complain and disobey and grumble? And so He tests us to show what's in our own heart. And the test really is to see, are you willing to trust and obey Him? And so the question that I think you should be pondering as well during this time is to ask yourself, do you trust Him? Do you obey Him? Do you follow him where he wants you to go? Do you live how he wants you to live? Do you follow his plainly revealed will for you in Scripture? Do you obey him? So you've got lots to do for this next 30 minutes or so. Let this text, as we work through what Israel did, did, Be a time of engagement between you and the Lord for how your own heart relates to his own providence in your life. This text is divided into two main sections. It first sees Israel at the waters of Marah where they're bitter, and then next it sees them in the wilderness um, of sin where they are going to experience the need for manna and bread. But the main ideas that come out in this text are already what I've been trying to communicate to you. There's the awkward grumbling of Israel. There's the gracious provision of God. There's the testing that God gives to his people. And then there is also the foolish disobedience that his people exhibit. We find Israel in chapter 15 having just been led out of Egypt crossing the Red Sea on dry land by the miraculous provision of God. And now they are in the wilderness, and they're in the wilderness of Shur. Um, Ironically, we're not quite sure where the wilderness of Shur is, but it's somewhere in the peninsula of Sinai. And we have um, at least the knowledge that it's going to be a relatively barren, inhospitable place that is not conducive to the millions of people that are there now. The Israelites have been led out of Egypt into the wilderness and they come to the realization rather quickly that they need water to survive in the wilderness. This isn't unreasonable. They come to a place called Marah. If you know your Old Testament, you know that in the book of Ruth, Naomi 
has lost her husband and has lost her sons, and she returns to Israel, and she no longer wants to be called Naomi, she wants to be called Mara, which means bitter. Now, if you're in the wilderness, and you know you need water, and you come to a place of water, and it's called bitter, things aren't looking very good right now. Even today, there's a place where Mara is typically located uh, on that Sinai Peninsula where there is water there, but it's brackish. It's, it's unpotable water. You can't drink it. And so they come to a place where there is water, but they cannot drink it. And so, after three days in the wilderness, and no water, and they come to Mara, they begin to complain. They grumble against Moses. And they ask the question, what shall we drink? And it's not as if this question, which sounds like a reasonable question, is, is issued with the sense of, oh, we know that God is good and going to provide for us, and we know that we're just humans who are reliant on water in order to survive, and so God in his mercy we know has all power and capacity to provide for us water. This isn't the water that we can drink, so we're just wondering, what will we drink? It's not how they're asking it. There's a tone to it. They feel entitled and expecting that there should be water to drink, and so it's asked, what shall we drink? They're embittered, and they issue this awkward grumbling. Grumbling, one dictionary defines as hostile complaining. Strong words of discontentment, angry rejection, or verbal attacks of a dissatisfied people. They are, out of the overflow of their hearts, speaking to Moses, who really represents God in this moment. They ultimately are complaining against God, and they have this hostility against the God who's led them this far, feeling like they've been let down by him. And the kind of complaining that they bring up here is really pretty awkward. It's embarrassing to ask this question in this way. It's awkward for a few reasons. It's awkward because the Israelites show little to no patience. They've been wandering in the wilderness for three days. Now, it's actually quite surprising that it took three days because you put me in a situation that's uncomfortable and give me about 30 seconds and I can come up with some pretty good complaining. Three days, though, is not a very long time to begin to doubt the goodness of God. And that's exactly what they're doing. And so they have little to no patience. It's only been three days. But they're also forgetful of God's mighty Capabilities, And so this makes their complaining embarrassing because they have just experienced the great acts of God and his displays of power and leading them out of Egypt. He's seen them through that horrific experience in Egypt and brought them out of it by his mighty hand. And so it seems for a moment like they don't even recognize all that God has done in the past couple of months. He just wiped out an entire nation and a powerful one at that. And so they are 
culpably forgetful about God's power when they complain. The grumbling is additionally awkward because it's not just forgetful of his mighty capabilities, it's also forgetful of his specific capabilities. They need water. They're at a place with brackish water. But just a few days ago, they just happened to walk through a sea of water that was split into walls. You might think they could conclude that the God who can manipulate water to that extent could do something about this water at Mara. He's not a God who is absent of power when it comes to water. He's just shown that with crystal clarity. And so their grumbling is embarrassing because it forgets his specific capabilities. The grumbling is also embarrassing because it's inconsistent. Just look back at what they were just doing in chapter 15. When they got to the other side of the sea and the sea is closed and the bodies of the Egyptians are washing up on the shore, Moses and the Israelites begin to sing. Just a few days ago, they're singing the praises of the God who delivered them. And now they are questioning his goodness and grumbling. Out of the same well, can you have pure water and salt water? How come we can have from the same lips praise and complaint? Praise to God for all of his goodness and complaint against God for all the goodness we think he withholds from us. How can it be that it comes from the same heart of a people who have been delivered by the mighty God, both praise and complaint? The complaints are embarrassing. Moses responds in the only appropriate way. In verse 25, he cried to the Lord. He's learning what it takes to lead this people. And he goes before the Lord. And the Lord, it says, showed him a log or literally instructed him about a log. And we see here the Lord's response, which is the gracious provision that he gives. It's a gracious provision from the Lord. Notice how quickly it moves from Israel's complaint, what shall we drink, to the Lord showing Moses this log that he's going to take and throw into the water to turn the water sweet. There's no mention of How dare you? I'll give you something to drink if you want something to drink. There's nothing to that. He gives Moses this miraculous provision reminiscent of the staff that he used in Egypt to turn this water that was once bitter to become sweet. And it shows God kindly cares for the people. He knows how much they need water. He knows better than they do how much they need water. Was it ever his intention Not to care for them? Was he really leading them into the wilderness so that they could die of thirst? Was that ever his intention? No. But in the Lord's provision of water now for the Israelites, we must not think that, again, God is indifferent to their complaining because as he gives this 
water to them, he begins to implement something that Israel is going to experience, which is a testing. God is now, in verse 25, giving them a statute and a rule, and it says, for there he tested them. And the test is, in verse 26, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. He makes this scenario where if they are going to listen to him and obey him, they will experience the blessings that God has for them. But if they choose to disobey, well, they will face consequences. God is going to be testing them to reveal what kind of people the Israelites are going to be. What kind of people are they? Sometimes we kind of daydream about the kind of person that we want to be. We have uh, these ideals that we want to live up to and Different people have different ideals. Some people kind of daydream about being rich and famous. Uh, Some people daydream about being the kind of person who's respected. Some people uh, dream about uh, having a clean home, an organized garage, a great marriage. They dream about being the kind of person who has a, a great husband or a great wife or dream about being a great husband or great wife or having great children, or being a great cook, or having a great boss, or being a great boss, or dream about having a great business, or having a big bank account, or having good work hours, or having a nice car, and kind of dream about these types of things. And God is searching about to see what kind of people his people will be. And so the question is, what kind of person do you long to be? What do you daydream about? What do you long to be? And the only really sufficient answer would be, I long to be somebody who obeys God. I long to be like Jesus Christ. And God in his grace is going to help the Israelites know just what is in their heart, what they want, what they long for, what they love, what they crave, what makes them comfortable, what kind of people they want to be. And God is setting about to test them so that it will be revealed. Doesn't he do that for us as well? Doesn't give us necessarily what we want, what we desire in our flesh. And he reveals to us that perhaps our desires are askew, they're, they're off. And he wants us to conform us to the image of Christ. Israel is going to be tested Will they trust him? Will they trust his goodness? And will they obey the wisdom of his commands? Will their trust be manifest in obedience to him? Right now, their distrust of Yahweh has led to their grumbling. This is just a taste of what's in their heart, and he will do further testing to help them see what's there. If they trustingly obey, they will find him to be their healer. Israel is now moving on from Mara, and they travel further. And now they come into the wilderness of sin in chapter 16. Uh, it may help us to know that when it's called the wilderness of sin, that doesn't mean that's the wilderness where Israel sinned. 
Um, I used to think that was why it was called the wilderness of sin, but it's actually like the wilderness of Sin, the wilderness of Sinai. It's the place where Sinai is, so it has nothing to do with uh, relating to disobedience. It's just the name of the place. The time has moved along. Now one month has passed. It says on the 15th day of the second month, chapter 16, verse 1, after they departed out of Egypt. And so they left Egypt in the first month of the year, 15th day of the month, and now a month has passed, and it's the second month of the year, 15th day of the month. Two million Israelites wandering in the wilderness, heading the opposite direction from the promised land, heading further and further into wilderness, and they have great needs. They have great physical needs. They certainly left Egypt with some stock of supplies. They plundered the Egyptians, but they didn't have time to pack up too much. And so, most likely, they're running low on food. We've already seen their need for water. But still, the author seems to emphasize it's only been one month. One month in the wilderness. And what do we find? Well, that awkward, embarrassing, grumbling strikes again. They're in the wilderness. In verse 3, they say to Moses and Aaron, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Grumbling. Again. One month later. Again, it's awkward. It's especially awkward this time because of what they accuse the Lord of. They accuse Yahweh of lacking goodness and basically bringing them into the wilderness with the intent to kill them. But it's also awkward in what they wish had happened to them. They said, would that we had died in Egypt, notice, by the hand of Yahweh. What they are saying in that moment is so awful that we have to understand it. They are basically saying they wished that instead of delivering them from the Egyptians, Yahweh had brought all the plagues that he put on the Egyptians on the Israelites so they would have died in Egypt rather than be brought into this forsaken wilderness. They basically curse the deliverance that God has given them. They retroactively want God's powerful plagues of punishment to have been applied to them rather than experience the deliverance that he has given them because it meant being led into this wilderness. You see how embarrassing the grumbling gets. It's awkward because they compare the very slavery that they cried out for relief from to be better than the deliverance God granted them. They think it was better for them as slaves than as a redeemed people purchased by God. They think in their lying memories that sitting next to meat pots in Egypt was better than being out in this wilderness with the Lord leading them. I mean, you have to give the people credit that 
they have some imaginative recollections of what it was like in Egypt. They seem to think it was great there. We got to sit next to the meat pots and eat to the full and have as much as we wanted of bread. And they conveniently leave out the very oppression that made them call out to the Lord in the first place. It awkwardly assumes that the motive of Moses and Aaron and ultimately Yahweh is to kill this massive group of people by famine. They basically think that God went through all this trouble of the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea in order to bring the people out to die of that horrific plague of starvation and just waste away as skeletons in the desert until one by one they drop dead. They're complaining against the goodness and care of God. He promises to appear to them and reveal his glory, at least within the cloud. It would be veiled. But he is going to remind them of who this is that they grumble against. It says in verse 8, your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And as if to remind them of what they should have known already in verse 12, it says, then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. But amidst all this grumbling and complaining, there is a gracious provision of God yet again. Once again, Yahweh does not pour out a plague on Israel, though they prove themselves to deserve it. Instead, he pours out on them provision and care through bread and meat. Right after verse 3, which is that horrific complaint against the Lord, is verse 4. This is the Lord's response to their grumbling. Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. I mean, we would think this would be the moment when if God is going to rain something, he should be raining fire and sulfur. But he's raining bread from heaven. What grace, what provision, what kindness that he gives. We have to pause and reflect on our lives for a moment because we are prone to complaint. By God's grace, he grows us in this. By God's grace, I hope that you are not as good of a grumbler today as you were a few years ago. That you grow in that grace and trust in the goodness of God. But nevertheless, each one of us are guilty of the sin of complaining, of accusing God of withholding some goodness that we deserve. And yet, what has he done for us? Not fire and sulfur, but day by day, food to eat, clothes to wear, air to breathe, a heart that beats. Again and again and again, day after day after day, God proves his benevolent kindness to us. And we shouldn't come at it just expecting. I've got a bowl of cereal this morning. I deserve this bowl of cereal. We come at it with the humility of, thank you. I don't deserve one bite of this. It's all kindness. It's all grace. So we see the gracious provision of the Lord. He pours on them provision and care through bread and meat. He is going to provide for them in the morning bread, that's the manna, and in the evening 
quail. Not certain how long the quail is going to last during their journey. But the manna lasts the entirety of the 40 years. It mentions that at the end of our text, that for 40 years he fed them with the manna. It was going to be such a memorable thing that they had to put some in a jar and it was going to be kept with the Ark of the Covenant in the time to come. But day by day, morning and evening, he provides for them. It was gracious provision because it was enough. When they went out and gathered, the Lord told them, gather as much as each person can eat, an omer per person. An omer was somewhere between one to two quarts, plenty to eat for an individual. And as they gathered and they came back to the camp, they didn't find, hey, you've got more than I do. That's not fair. They found that everybody had just as much as they needed for the day. It was a perfect provision There wasn't a distinction between poor and rich at the dinner table. They all had enough. It was gracious provision also because it was good. It tells us what what the manna tasted like. And it's an amazing miracle. Some people try to explain this um, manna by naturalistic explanations that there would be some appearance of uh, sap-like substance that kind of shows up in Sinai at different times of the year and that this is rich in carbohydrates and this is what the Israelites subsisted on for those 40 years. It's really clear that this is a miraculous supernatural intervention of God because it comes with the dew in the morning. As the dew evaporates, there's left this crystal-like substance on the ground and the people come to it and just to show it's not normal, they say, what is it? They don't know what it is, and that's how it gets the name manna, which sounds like the Hebrew for what? It's gracious, supernatural provision that has a flavor to it. God could have just given some sort of uh, substance pill that would, nutrition pill that would give everything you need, but he gives something that has flavor. It says in verse 31 that it was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like, Wafers made with honey. It doesn't taste like Brussels sprouts. <laughs> what a mercy. It tastes good. In numbers, it says that it tastes like cakes baked with oil and honey. It's nutritious. It's delicious. What a gracious provision. It was gracious because it was a reminder and the lesson on who the Lord was and is. He is gracious. He is kind. He is providing. It's also gracious because within these parameters of giving this food, he includes a day of rest. He includes the Sabbath. In verse 22, they're to gather twice as much bread in verse 23 it's a day of solemn rest this is a reminder of the goodness of God to give the people in the wilderness a day where they don't have to go out and gather they don't have to go cook it's a day to experience rest this is a God who has fought for his people delivered his people provided for his people cares for them guards them, loves them, 
feeds them, waters them. In a word, he's a good shepherd. But with this provision comes the testing. He gives a test along with this. Verse 4 of chapter 16, he says, I'm about to rain bread from heaven that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. But the test he gives is super simple. It's like a test from a teacher that expects you just to answer one question, and the question is, what is your name? It's a nice, easy test that he gives them. The test is, in verse 4, the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. That's not hard to understand. That's not calculus. That's just a clear, straightforward test. Gather one day's supply. Super simple. Further element of this test does get a little bit more complicated. Verse 5, it says, On the sixth day, when they prepare what to bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. In verse 23, it says, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. Okay, so days one through five, gather one day's provision. Don't keep any left over until the next day. Day six, gather twice as much. Cook it and boil it and prepare the food for the seventh day. And don't gather on the seventh day. That's the test. It's a really easy test. The catch is, it puts them in a position of complete dependence on God. I'm not against um, preppers those who prepare large quantities of supplies to be able to uh, sustain themselves and their families should anything catastrophic happen. This is not against that. But nobody in Israel in the wilderness could be a prepper. They had to be a kind of people that go before the Lord daily and say, give us this day our daily Bread. They couldn't stock up their pantries. They couldn't stock up warehouses. They could not get their supplies one day except for day six when they have enough for two days. And so this is an easy test unless you're prone to worry about tomorrow, unless you want to get everything ready to take care of tomorrow's worries. For those people who want to have everything lined up about what's going to be tomorrow, what am I going to eat on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, I need to have all of that planned, I need to have all of it set, it's going to be difficult because it is going to require day-by-day trust and dependence on God. Puts them in that position. This test is going to prove to them that they cannot live on bread alone, but must live by every word that comes from God's mouth. Deuteronomy chapter 8 is a chapter worth reading in totality if you can take the time. Let me just point out one verse, verse 3. It says, And he humbled you and let your hunger 
let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. If Israel was going to make it through that time, they couldn't just live on the bread that was provided. They had to obey what God had said about how he provided it. They could not just live on physical bread. They had to live by the words of God, and if they didn't, they wouldn't make it. This was preparing Israel for that time when they were going to enter into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to prepare them to know that it's not by their strength and might that there is an abundance of milk and honey in the promised land. That's what God was concerned about, in a sense, that they would forget that God provides for them daily when they get to a land of abundance. And so he tests them in the wilderness to help them see that they are a people who need to be dependent on God in every word that comes from his mouth. Well, the test is relatively easy, but no surprise to us who fail easy tests. They failed. In verse 20, it says, They did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. They didn't obey that first one. And then regarding the Sabbath, it says in verse 27, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. They failed that one too. And now we see that the Lord's patience is not inexhaustible. In verse 28, the Lord speaks to Moses as representative of the people How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? People grumbled, doubting his goodness. The Lord graciously supplied. The Lord tested, and the people failed. Seems like Israel was basically expecting that after their redemption out of Egypt, they were expecting a stay at the Marriott in Sinai, in order to get their dream home in the promised land. And life doesn't work that way. It's amazing how parallel this is to our own life. We've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, and yet we live in the wilderness of this world, full of corruption, full of temptations, full of testing. We haven't reached glory yet. Our Lord is in the heaven at the right hand. We've given, been given a, a deposit in the Holy Spirit. It's guaranteed, but we're not there yet. And in the meantime, we are being tested. What kind of people are we? Are we a people who grumble and complain? Or are we a people that trust the goodness and provision of a gracious God? with a willingness to obey him. Grumbling is a discontented heart that reflects a lack of trust in the goodness, provision, care, and wisdom of God. doesn't trust God's goodness because you think he is withholding something good from you. And in a matter of fact, he may be testing you 
in order to lead you home. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 15 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation whom you shine, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Our grumbling and complaining blemishes our testimony before this world. But our trust in God shines like a light to it. We are still tested. Proverbs 17.3 says, The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. It's what he does. Isaiah 48.10 says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Primary place that he tests us is in the crucible to see what comes out of us in those moments where it could look like he's withholding something good from us, but the moment when we ought to trust him the most. 1 Peter 4, verse 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. The Lord wants to reveal what's in you. And he's looking for a people that trusts him and obeys him. Israel received that gracious provision of water when they didn't deserve it. They received the gracious provision of manna when they didn't deserve it. We don't get manna. We don't find bitter water turned sweet, but we have something better. Turn to John chapter 6. Let me just highlight one or two verses here, and you can read the whole chapter on your own. This is Jesus having fed the 5,000 with bread and fish. An amazing miracle. And the people come back afterwards seeking him, and Jesus acknowledges In verse 26 of John 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They had physical provision and they wanted more, but Jesus wants to point them to something better. John 6 verse 27 says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. He wants to give us something better than food that perishes. The people ask Jesus for a sign. What sign do you do? They, they acknowledged Moses gave manna in the wilderness. And in verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
we don't get to go out in the morning and wait for the dew to go away and get some manna. We get something better. We get the, get the living bread, the true bread. It leads us to eternal life. And Jesus goes on to comment, you know what happened to that whole wilderness generation that ate the manna? They got the supply of bread. They got water. You know what happened to them? They actually did die. The manna was not food for eternal life. You don't get eternal life by eating manna. You get eternal life by believing in Jesus. And that's the true food that we need. That's who we need to go to. And when you have him, what do you have to complain about? He calls us to follow him now, trusting that he is our good shepherd, having provided us with eternal life. And he calls us to trust him and to obey him. So let's do that with a little less complaining than normal. The Lord is good to us. He provides all that we need. Let's trust him and obey him. Let's pray. Lord, you've not only provided us with um, all the physical food that we need, you have provided us with Jesus Christ, the bread of life. We've come to him so that we may not hunger or thirst for eternity. Lord, thank you for providing for us so abundantly. Lord, forgive us for our grumbling and complaining, our lack of trust, our disobedience to you. Would you grow us, mature us, make us more like your beloved son? Thank you that you are patient and merciful. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.